Heavenly Father, Father, we, uh, we know people tell us that absence makes our hearts grow fonder, and although I don't find that in your word, Father, I certainly have experienced that in the time we've been apart, Father, for obvious reasons. I thank you, Father, that today, in light of that separation, we can be that much more thankful and that much more devoted to the following uh, of others into gatherings of this kind, to the coming together, to the serving with one another, and that we won't take it for granted. If we ever did, I suspect now, Father, we'll think twice. And I thank you for that. We see even in that small example how trials, Father, in your hands can be used to such great good in our hearts. And I know, Father, in addition, there have been many other lessons learned, experiences, trials, growth, challenges. And I ask, Father, that in all the things that we are collectively experiencing as a result of this interesting time, that you show us clearly how it is you're working in our lives. And that even in the study we'll embark on now in the life of this man, David, who you say is a man after your own heart, that we'll learn something about what trial and patience through difficult times can lead to in a person's life, that David might be our example in that regard, Father. We look for that and for other lessons as we proceed through this book. It is a privilege to study, Father, in your word. We pray that this study will complete as it begins with an eager anticipation to learn and with a and a group of believers, Father, who are anxious to hear from you. Give us, Father, your counsel as we study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of 2 Samuel is our study, uh, and it is a fascinating story. Uh, If you were to go to the Hebrew Bible from about uh, 2,000 years ago, you would find not two books called Samuel, but one. One book of Samuel, that's how this was originally written. First and Second Samuel were originally just one work. And then when the elders of Israel translated that work into Greek, we call that the Septuagint, they made the decision at that time to split the book of Samuel into two books called First and Second Kingdoms. And that's how it went for a number of centuries until Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, about 400 AD. And when he did that, he decided to change the name to First and Second Samuel. And here we are. With, a, with what was originally one book called Samuel. We have taught, the ministry has taught 1 Samuel before, a number of years ago. It's online. Maybe some of you have heard it or gone out and looked at it. And I gave a fairly lengthy introduction in 1 Samuel about the author and about the times and circumstances of that book. I'm not going to repeat that here. I'm going to give you a little bit, but I don't need to go through all that again. I direct you back there if you're interested in that background. But a couple of details are worth repeating for tonight because it's important to understand what we're coming into as we jump into the middle of something here. This book was written probably by Samuel, but not all of it, because as some of you may know, he dies about halfway through. So somehow the rest of the book got written, and the likely answers for who would have done the rest are either Gad, who was another, uh, I'm sorry, um, Nathan, who was another prophet at that time, or Gad, who was a prophet, and neither of those prophets had books in the Bible, as you know, so it's likely they may have been the authors of this one. In any case, 1 Samuel covers... The rise of kings in Israel. Many of you know this, I'm sure, but it's the time you move out of Judges into the first of the kings of Israel. You have the first king, Saul, and then you have the second king, David. That's principally what the first book is about. Second Samuel picks up at Saul's death, and it tells the story of another rivalry, but this time this rivalry is between David and himself. And the story starts with David, consolidating his power as the new king of Israel. That's what we'll start doing next week. And his early victories as he begins to obey the voice of the Lord and as he begins to lead the nation well. And there's a great period of success for David early on. But soon into the story, you're going to find David beginning to give in to temptations, to his stumbles into sin, and then the consequences that follow from that. You're going to have David's own son, Absalom, who will revolt against David and rebel for the throne. You're going to have later God bringing famine and other consequences because of what David does in his uh, sin and his failures. All of that will lead to David's repentance in the end. There's a story here about a man who on the one hand seems the epitome of godliness and on the other hand just does a few really stupid things. And it's so characteristic of humanity in that regard among the believers that it's reassuring to us that if David could stumble then we are not hopelessly without the ability to obey either. 
So if you want to put these two books in a bit of, uh, of contrast, if 1 Samuel is a story about a strong man, Saul was a big man, a strong man, uh, a, a kind of uh, bodybuilder type, according to scripture. So if it's a story about a strong man with an ungodly character, in his case, then 2 Samuel is the story of a man who has godly character, but weak flesh. And that's a story everyone can recognize. And that's a story then that lets us learn something about ourselves too. That the Lord brings discipline against his children when necessary, when we're unfaithful. But he does so as a, a process of working out our sanctification. And just like David, the proper response to the discipline of the Lord when it comes is humility and repentance. And then that brings opportunity for restoration. That's David's story. Many of you know that story. The challenge of teaching Second Samuel is a bit because it's so well-known, helping you see him perhaps in a way you haven't seen him before. That's part of the challenge I have with you. Secondly, in 1 Samuel, there's a major theme of the book that will continue into 2 Samuel, and that is God's sovereignty. It's all over the pages of these two books. Uh, At many points, you're gonna see the author in this case taking care to show you how the events in David's life are unfolding according to the will of God. You can see the human cause and the way David did something and it resulted in something, but you can also stand back and see how God has put the whole thing together for David's good. And we also have that as an opportunity to learn, that is how we consent to God in our life, knowing that God has a plan that we have to concede to what he's doing in our life and not do our own will in the face of it. That's an ever-present challenge for every believer. That's part of what we'll learn as we look at David. You know, David could rely on God And he says so, but he often only does it so long. (laughs) And then at some point, he takes matters into his own hands, but ultimately he comes back to where God is. That's, this arc of David's life is such a reassuring one, and I hope that's what you'll take out of it. Ultimately, if you have an appreciation of God's sovereignty, as David did, it will manifest an attitude in your heart that wants to please God and treat others the way that God asks you to. That, that tendency to say, whatever is coming at me, I know God's in control of this, so I don't have to fight against it. I can work with it. That's a healthy, mature attitude. David's story is the story of a man whose life begins with that perspective, fighting Goliath with a slingshot. That's a man who trusted in God. And it ultimately ends that way, but in the middle, it's rocky, at least at times. So his events... The events of his life are testimony to the sovereignty of God working patiently in the life of David. So in 2 Samuel, here's where we're picking up. This, that's all kind of background, general commentary, but we pick up now in the middle of the story, right? This is the second half of one book in the way it was originally written. So I need to give you a little bit of a recap of what happened in 1 Samuel. Anybody here stream shows on Netflix where it takes like five years between seasons and you're... You're so lost when you get back into the next season, you're like, I don't even remember who these people are. And if you've ever been that person, you go to YouTube and someone does the helpful recap video. Have you ever watched those? You can just search on Google, last season of whatever, and there's somebody, I don't know where these people come from, I don't know how they have so much time on their hands, but they sit there and they show you clips of the whole last season while they narrate quickly what happened. And my wife watched that with me one time. She says, why don't we just watch that every year? Why? That saved us like 40 hours right there. Anyway. Uh, what I'm about to do now is the Steve version of that for 1 Samuel. All right, this is a quick recap of what you find in that book. And we're going to start with uh, some pictures here of what we're looking at, or uh, a slide that shows some of the things we're talking about here. The book of Samuel, as I'm calling it now, that's first and second. The book of Samuel is going to cover the lives of three principal men in Israel's history, starting at about 1121 B.C. and going until about 971 B.C. in the case of 1 Samuel. That's a total of 150 years for 1 Samuel. And the men that it covers are the prophet Samuel, born in 1121. That's where the story basically starts. And then the two kings that follow him, Saul, who dies in 1011 BC, so that ends his reign, and then David, who picks up at that point into 2 Samuel and eventually dies in 971 BC. Now, David's son Solomon follows him, and he only gets a brief mention in 2 Samuel, and by brief, I mean two verses. So he's not really a, a, a character, if you will, in the books of Samuel. You get him, his story comes out of First and Second Kings and the books of Chronicles. So First Samuel covers that period of time. Second Samuel covers that period of time, principally David's life as king, 
And then you'd go into First and Second Kings to get what happens after them all the way through the kings down the line. All right, so that's the history that we're going to be studying more or less. During those 150 years that are represented in that, in that span between Samuel and David, you find a remarkable period of history for the nation. It's a remarkable period of growth and development. If you've read the story of Judges, remember that's what immediately precedes this period of history. So at the start of 1 Samuel, you have Israel as this small nation. They are oppressed by people all around them, Philistines and Canaanite peoples. They're judged by weak leaders, generally, and they're harassed at every turn. But when you get to the end of 2 Samuel, Israel is the world superpower, and they are about to anoint a king who is going to be the richest and wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth ever, according to Scripture. So that is a remarkable turnaround in those 150 years. We go from nothing little country, can't even rule itself, to what was the superpower of its day. And 1 Samuel begins that journey with a high priest, a man named Eli, who is a weak man with godless sons. And after him, we find Samuel anointing Saul as the first king. Now, Saul was not much better. Saul was a man chosen by the people for his appearance, not for his godly character, which was against God's counsel. Eventually, as a result of that, Saul forgets God and his reign. He gets greedy. Ultimately, by the end of his life, he's turning to witches and the occult for guidance. But God continues to bless the nation through that man and in general, and ultimately he raises up what will be their greatest king by most accounts, David, and David is introduced about midway through 1 Samuel, so about halfway through the book you get the introduction of this young boy, this youngest son of Jesse, and he's chosen by God to replace Saul. The key moment in that book is where Saul is disqualified because of his sin, and I'll just read you that quick section. If you want to turn with me back a little from where you are, you're probably sitting there wondering when are we going to get to 2 Samuel. Just turn back for a moment. 1 Samuel 15. Now, in this study, I don't generally put the scripture verses on the screen unless there's something unique I want to show you. So what I expect you to do is just look at your own Bible. So 1 Samuel 15, 24. This is when the prophet Samuel gets to inform the king, Saul, that he is no longer going to be king. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now he's talking here about a problem. He went into a battle against Amalekites and he was told after he wins, God told him, kill all of them. I don't, they're not to be in the land, this land is yours. And Saul did not do that. He didn't do it because he was greedy. He kept the spoil of the war instead of destroying it. He was supposed to kill the animals, the people, and everything. So he disobeys. He disobeys for, for greed. Now he's caught, red-handed. And so he tells Samuel, oh, I'm so sorry. Verse 25, he says, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. <laughs> yeah. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. So Saul disobeyed the Lord, as I told you, and his heart had become so perverted in his rule that he was rather pleased to keep spoil for himself against the counsel of the Lord than he was to actually do what the Lord asked, never mind the fact that he's putting his people in jeopardy by allowing enemies to maintain their existence in the land. So Saul is told, hey, buddy, your time's up, Samuel says. And Saul responds here with crocodile tears. This is the kind of, of repentance that Esau cried when he was learning that he couldn't keep the inheritance that he wanted because he sold it to his brother Jacob. This is what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. This is not the kind of repentance that shows I want to change what I'm doing or how I think. This is sorrow over my circumstances, over how things have turned out for me. And so Samuel tells Saul that God's decision is going to stand. God's not going to change his mind. You're not telling him something he didn't already know. You're not giving him new data. It's not like you can convince him of something he didn't already take into account. He's thought it all already and he's come to that decision. God does not change his mind. And then Samuel goes on to tell Saul something he didn't expect. Something worse than losing the throne. He says, you're not only being disqualified as king, but so are your descendants. 
That is, Saul's dynasty was now being taken away, not just his own place on the throne. Now, a dynasty refers to a line of kings that come out of the same family. Uh, the, the son inherits the throne from the father when the father passes away, and in that way, the, the dynasty just moves from one generation to the next in a succession of kings. That's what we mean when we say a dynasty. So when the son is born, he's the automatic heir to the father, and he just waits around for the father to die, sort of like, well, Prince Charles. So dynasties usually last for centuries because only if that family would fail to produce an heir or maybe a revolution came along, only then would there not be a normal succession. But what God has just said to Saul is, we're not going to go through dynasties in your case. You are the first and last king of your family. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 28 again. Saul is told by Samuel that the kingdom will be taken away from him and given to his neighbor. That's the phrase that clues him in. The word neighbor in Hebrew, it means friend or companion. In other words, not a family member. So Saul is learning that the kingdom is being taken away from his family, given to a new family a new dynasty. He has failed so miserably that the Lord is rejecting him and his family. And in place of Saul's family, his dynasty, will come now a new dynasty, a new family, the family of Jesse. Specifically, his son David will now be the new family. And that decision sets the scene for the action for the rest of 1 Samuel. So if you want a quick overview of the second half of 1 Samuel, it's Saul upset at David because David now has the right to his throne. And the Lord raises up David in the meantime. First Goliath, and then a position in Saul's court, eventually the commander of Saul's army. God systematically raises up David amongst his enemy in preparation for what will eventually be David's rise to the throne. It reminds us of the story of Joseph in a way, Joseph rising up to a position of power even amongst his enemies. Eventually, when Saul figures out that David's been anointed in his place, that gives Saul reason to attack. So then it moves from just being antagonistic to being violent. And David has to flee from Saul he gets out in the desert running from Saul's army and he has a loyal band of uh, misfit men that come alongside him and they all run out together and for the next decade, for the next 10 years, <laughs> David is on the run in the wilderness of Judea against Saul who is chasing after him off and on the whole time, trying to kill him. And in that time, David refuses to raise his hand against Saul he trusts that the Lord will defend him until his day comes. And what he does in those 10 years, among other things, is he writes most of the Psalms, which if you read them, read just like a man in the wilderness running from someone who was trying to kill him. And yet thankful that the Lord has preserved him and trusting in the Lord to take care of him. And David learns to be devoted to prayer. He becomes a man of song. And he becomes a man who seeks the Lord's counsel. And remarkably, in the process of those 10 years, he establishes a really strong relationship with a friend, a man named Jonathan, who just happens to be Saul's son. And of all the people who should have been threatened by David's ascent to power, it should have been Jonathan. I mean, he's the heir to Saul's throne. He's the next in line in this dynasty that's now being taken away. Jonathan, in that case, re represents the greatest threat to David's new dynasty, and likewise, David should have seen Jonathan as the greatest obstacle to him taking the throne that God had given him. These guys should have been at each other's throats. But instead, they're best friends. And in fact, they enter into a covenant at one point in which David promises to protect Jonathan and his family once he comes to the throne. And in return, Jonathan secretly pledges allegiance to David's dynasty. In fact, David tells Jonathan, you'll have a position in my court. So, by the end of 1 Samuel... There's my Netflix overview right there. Saul has become obsessed and deranged by his pursuit of David. He is engaged in a full-fledged spiritual breakdown. The guy is on the verge of insanity. Meanwhile, David is just waiting patiently for the throne. He uses the time that he has, and he takes advantage of the reputation that he's earned as an outlaw to deceive and infiltrate Israel's enemies and as the book comes to an end, David and his small army of men are way south in the uh, southern part of the land of Judea. I'll show you that here on a map. So the blue there represents Saul's kingdom at the time. And David is way down south fighting Amalekites with his men. And as he does, he beats them. He wins a powerful victory down there. Meanwhile, Saul and his sons, three of his sons, are up at Mount Gilboa, which is in the southern area of the Galilee, 
and they're fighting Philistines at this same time. And while David's army is victorious in a miraculous way, it's actually reminiscent of Gideon. He has a few hundred men, half of whom are chickened out and don't even go into battle, the other half are vastly outnumbered, and they still, you know, uh, take care of the battle and, uh, you know, take names, as they say, and send the bad guys home. Meanwhile, though, Saul's army is routed by the Philistines, and Saul and his three sons are all killed in battle at Mount Gilboa. The army of the Philistines takes the bodies of the king and his sons, beheads them, and then takes their headless bodies and nails their bodies up onto the wall of a fortified city called Bet-Shean. The ruins of Bet-Shean are still there today. You can go visit the place where he was nailed. And that's just south of the Sea of Galilee on the map there. So while the Philistines are celebrating their victory in the north over Saul, David and his men are enjoying their victory over the Amalekites down in a town called Ziklag, And in that day, news does not travel instantly. So David in the south doesn't know that Saul in the north is dead. And he doesn't realize he's just become king. It's going to take a few days for the news to reach David. And that's where the story picks up in 2 Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out from the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrate himself. And David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, Well, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, Oh, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand behind beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. All right, so here's what happened. You have a victory over the Amalekites. David and his men have just won this great victory. They're sitting in the town of Ziklag, kind of, I guess, relaxing after their victory. Ziklag is in Philistine territory. So David is still outside the area of Israel because he's running from Saul. And all of Israel knows that David has been hiding among the Philistines in southern Judea as a way of avoiding Saul's reach. David's been doing this for a while. And yet the nation also knows that David is anointed to be Saul's successor. So everyone gets the, the, the intrigue. Everybody gets the fight that's, on, that's underway. And they also realize that when Saul dies in battle, now David is the king. And everyone knew this, and somebody has to tell David, right? And The fact that David is so far south means he is probably one of the very last people in Israel to find out that he is king. So someone is going to go down there and be the first to tell him. Now, a journey from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag, given the way people travel on foot, about 20 miles a day on average and so on, it's about a four-day walk. You can do that walk in four days. And David receiving the news would, for the most part, been considered a good thing. People assume that if you've been running around chased by Saul everywhere and you're supposed to be king when he dies, you'll be happy to hear that that's now the case. You don't have to run anymore, David. You're now in charge. And so the thinking goes that if you're the one to tell David the good news, he'll reward the messenger. You know, we shoot the messenger. Well, they also rewarded the messenger. But this guy says, I have come to you in three days, which tells us this guy moved fast. He was moving quickly, probably so that he could be the first one to tell David about Saul's death. And that gives us an indication he wanted that reward. There's really no other reason why he would be so quick about it. He assumes David will be happy, and David will give him something for the effort. But there's also a risk here for this guy, because this guy has to convince David he had nothing to do with the death. Typically, the history of warfare is told by the victors. And losers do not live to tell anybody anything. So the man's survival makes him a suspect. 
Moreover, he's in possession of the king's artifacts. He's in possession of the king's crown. That means he got very close to the king. Typically, the guy who kills the king gets what the king had. Remember what David did? He took Goliath's sword. So to have possession of David's, of Saul's crown and to have survived the battle suggests strongly that he had something to do with the death and perhaps may have been coming now to exploit it further by claiming to have been on Saul's side. So naturally, David being a wise guy, wise man, wise guy sounds wrong, doesn't it? Wise man, uh, he suspects this guy, and he's not going to just go with the story right up front. He wants some evidence. He wants to hear the details. So that sets up this fascinating exchange where David now hears the man's story as he tries to get to the bottom of it, and it starts in verse 2. The man falls at David's feet. He tries to get David's audience, and David says, tell me what you're here for. He says, I'm come from the camp. Now, David knew that Saul was in the north fighting Philistines. Saul and the Philistines have been at war most of Saul's, all of Saul's time in power. So David knew there had been a battle, and as soon as he hears this guy came from the camp, which is a way of saying, I've come from the army, David says, tell me, what happened? And, you know, to credit the guy, he doesn't bury the lead. He goes straight for the news. We lost, many died, Saul and his sons are dead. And before David reacts to that, he demands a little proof. He says, how do I know you're telling me the truth? And that's when the guy's story gets interesting, and no doubt he was rehearsing this the whole three days that he was walking. He says, during the battle, I found myself on Mount Gilboa, and that's uh, a tall, projected little mountain. It's actually a, a dormant volcano, very rounded top mountain in the plain of the Jezreel Valley. And he says, while we were up there, I saw Saul leaning on his spear. Now, when you hear that, you need to understand what that means. It's not leaning like this. It literally refers to him trying to commit suicide. In other words, he is literally trying to put his body onto the spear in such a way that the spear will go through his body. And we know he's been wounded. The, man, the, the Amalekite says that. So apparently, with the chariots and the horsemen of the Philistines closing in, Saul is trying to kill himself. He didn't have the strength to push the sword into his body. So in danger of capture or worse, he says to this other guy, would you help me kill myself, basically? Would you take my life for me? And at the point before that happens, you notice Saul is quoted as saying, who are you? And the man says, oh, I'm an Amalekite. The messenger's inclusion of that little detail in his story um, I think was calculated on his part because earlier in Saul's reign, he failed to destroy all the Amalekites. That's what caused him to lose his crown, remember? And moreover, David has just returned from defeating Amalekites in the south. And so the messenger knows probably that sooner or later his identity as Amalekite is going to come out. So rather than have it come out in the wrong way, he skillfully woven that disclosure into his storytelling in the hope that as David learns his true identity, he'll just kind of let it go by unnoticed because he's more interested in the facts of the story. He just wants to get on the record, hey, I am an Amalekite, but let's get on with the the rest of this. For now, David does nothing with it. He just allows the man to get on with it. And in verse 9, he gets to the main point. He says, Saul was already mortally wounded. He was going to die. So as an act of mercy, Saul asked me, I did it, I helped him, I killed him. And what he's expecting, of course, here is that David would look upon that act as a, uh, an appropriate thing under the circumstances and it would be seen as an act of pity or mercy, not as something wrong. And that explains how he came into possession of the king's armor, or the king's uh, crown, rather, and his bracelet. He's saying, yeah, I was the one there, but I didn't kill him like kill him. I was there like helping him. And then David responds, verse 11. Now, the first thing David does is simply react to the news. He says in verse 11, then David took off his clothes and tore them, or took hold, sorry, of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. We'll pause there. So David's first priority is mourning the fallen king and all the people with him. And it says he tears his clothes on his body. That was a very traditional way in that time of displaying your mourning for someone. But keep in mind, he wouldn't have done it violently. This is not like an act, like, oh, let me show you how upset I am. No, it was done very ritually, very just slowly. I'm gonna tear my clothes and in the attempt to let your physical appearance reflect your heart. So it was just a way of preparing yourself for mourning, like we would put on black, for example. Then it says he fasts for the remainder of the day. Now, that's not very long by their standards. But I suspect it reflects the fact that they couldn't afford to do it any longer. The days are now very dangerous. There is no king in Israel. 
And David, though he's anointed, has to consolidate power, and he's not sure who his rivals are, and he's got to have to travel back up into Jerusalem and into um, uh, other areas, places where there are those who lead or have control of various areas of the country, and he's going to have to consolidate that. So he doesn't have a lot of time, but he does his best. After that brief period of mourning, he then turns his attention back to the messenger. We assume this is probably later that night or the next morning. Verse 13, David says to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, well, I am a son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. All right, so David knows this man's an Amalekite. He heard that earlier. But now he's curious for how he got into the camp of Israel. That's what he means. You know, I hear you're an Amalekite. What were you doing in the camp of Israel? The man says, well, I'm a son of an alien. And that's a phrase that means he was born in Israel to an Amalekite father who immigrated into Israel. And according to the law, he, this man, would have been a protected alien under the law. Under the law of Moses, he is given due process, as we would say, under the law of Moses, as if he was Jew, because he is a a sojourner, an alien in their land. And he expects that to help him here, because he's afraid David's gonna treat him like he does all the Amalekites. So he's trying to position himself here as someone who is worthy of David's trust, but more than that, he's protected by the law. He can't be just killed like an enemy combatant. But in this case, that is the opposite of what he wants, because the law convicts him, in this case, of murder. Notice in verse 16, David says, this man has confessed to murder by his own testimony. He admits to killing Saul. Now, you and I look at that and go, yeah, yeah, but he had extenuating circumstances. He says it was a mercy killing. There's no provision for that in the law of Moses. The law of Moses does not recognize that exception. In the same way, by the way, that our law doesn't. You cannot kill someone today simply because that person is in pain or terminally ill or they annoy you, or you, they ask you for help. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You can't come up with a reason under law that says you can kill somebody, uh, and except self-defense, I guess. And so as a result, uh, this man is justifiably prosecuted and punished for murder. And what is the penalty in the law for murder? Death. And they were swift about justice back there. No further adjudication is required. The man confessed. We don't need more than that. So David orders the man to die immediately for his offense because he was under the law. David asks this man, as he does, how could you have even dared to raise your hand against God's anointed and then come claiming credit for it? David is truly amazed that this man thought that killing the anointed king of Israel was a good thing, no matter the circumstances. And his comment shows something to you. It shows the growth of David. Earlier in 1 Samuel, there was a moment in which David had dared to raise his hand against Saul in a very minor way, in a cave, in which Saul was relieving himself, we're told. David was in their cave already, as it turned out, and so he saw his opportunity, and he snuck up behind Saul, and he cut a little bit of Saul's robe just to demonstrate to Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And that gesture, as harmless as it may seem to us, David later came to greatly regret that because he recognized that his offense was not merely embarrassing Saul. His offense was challenging the authority and the honor of the man that God had put in power. David was disobeying God by showing contempt for God's choice in putting Saul in power. And as you might say, well, he had already told Saul he was no longer gonna be king. Yes, but he had not removed him yet. For for reasons of God's own economy, his own purposes here, he had left Saul in power. And David's dishonoring of Saul is tantamount to David rebelling against God. There's a story behind that as well in 1 Samuel about how David has taken through that process to see that, learn from that, and do better. And here you see the proof that he learned his lesson. For he is not allowing anyone at this point to take arms up against the king. So once David realizes his mistake and he repents from that, he dared never to raise his hand against God's anointed again, which is why we spend so long in 1 Samuel with David being chased around the world by Saul and David doing nothing to try to stop it. So even as Saul committed greater wrongs against David, David respected Saul to the point at least that he did nothing against him. And if God had anointed Saul as king, then David rightly believed only God could remove the king. And he would do so when he was ready. 
So David could not strike Saul because he knew that God intended Saul to reign, and he knew then that God was in control of when he himself would have that opportunity to reign. There's a lesson in that as we pass by this moment. Trying to impose your timetable on God's plan is just as much disobedience as ignoring God's plan. Rushing what God has said he's going to do does not make you more obedient, it makes you less. It took David a while to learn that lesson in 1 Samuel. Now you see that he's understanding it well. Now he's prepared to teach the Amalekite the same way. So he orders the man killed on the spot. One of David's men carries it out. And one of the consequences of David doing this is it ensures no one would ever suspect him of being celebrating the death of King Saul. No one ever at this point could say David is happy about the outcome. He's clearly not. And this kind of decision... What you see David doing here, something you didn't expect, something you probably wouldn't have done yourself, right? Something we might have looked at differently. This counterintuitive way of David thinking is something he becomes known for. A man after God's own heart, doing the thing God would do when everyone else would look at it and do it differently. He he sort of tapped into that God's ways are not man's ways. So often he seemed to know what God's way was when no one else around him did. And that's indicative of what you'll see in this book. This very odd juxtapositioning in David's life of a man who seemed to know what God wanted better than anyone and yet did some really dumb things anyway, which again is somewhat encouraging if you think about it. In any case, there's also a cost here for David. What David's about to do now is he's just made himself a pariah to the Philistines. Remember, he's still in Philistine territory right now. And he's been telling the Philistines, I'm on your side, Saul is my enemy. But he's been doing that As a subterfuge, he wants to work his way into the culture of the Philistines and the Amalekites with the intent that he can undermine them from inside. He's a spy, effectively. But now, he just killed the man who came and told him that Saul was dead. Game's up. No chance he can fool them anymore that he's on their side. Clearly, he has cast his his lot with Israel, and as a result now, he's a pariah in the Philistine territory. He's going to have to go back into the blue area on our map here. He is no longer going to be able to hide in the area of the Philistines. Of course, there's no need for him to anymore, because now he is king, or at least he has the right to be. And that's what God wanted. God wanted to drive David back into the nation, and he's done that. But what of the man's story? You know, we haven't really addressed that as we move past it now. Did he tell the truth? Is that what actually happened to Saul? Well, the man confessed to murder. David then killed him because of that. Really no need for David to investigate further, but we can do a little investigation here. You find the biblical account of Saul's death at the end of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31. I'll just read you a few verses. 1 Samuel 31, 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and uh, Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men on that day together. So the biblical account says Saul committed suicide unassisted, which would seem to suggest the Amalekite story was false. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, he tries to reconcile these two by claiming that the Amalekite helped him fall on his sword, as he said he did, even though 1 Samuel doesn't talk about that part of it. I don't think that makes sense. It's unlikely that Saul's armor bearer would have stood by idly while an Amalekite killed his king. Mercy killing or not, he, wouldn't, he was scared as it was. He didn't want to see anybody hurt the king. So it's more likely that he simply was nearby, saw what happened, and after the armor bearer is dead, he sees his potential here for a plan. He goes up, takes the king's stuff with him, and then takes the story back. And his story is built on what he saw, but he puts himself in the middle of it to explain why he has the king's uh, crown, and then he's just trying to exploit it for money. So that's the story. Now, so, what's interesting here, though, is he miscalculated so badly that he didn't anticipate not only the law applying to him in the way that it did, but I think his bigger mistake, he did not foresee David's godly perspective of Saul's death. Saul was not David's enemy as far as David was concerned. 
The Lord had placed Saul in power as badly as Saul was treating David. Nonetheless, he was still the Lord's anointed. And so that meant anyone who opposed Saul was opposing God. Anyone who killed Saul was striking out against God. That's David's perspective. Now, you and I can sit here very biblically minded, very academically focused and say, okay, I get it. David's a very smart guy. But honestly, does anyone think like that? I mean, in our present day, for example, the fight for political power has increasingly become kind of an existential struggle, right? It's, and in the process, it's leading Christians in some cases to forget this example. That is, even as we oppose those on the other side of whatever position we take, you have to remember, leaders are appointed by God at all levels of government. Leaders are appointed by God. And when a regime change takes place, the Lord is selecting the winners. He is appointing the new regime. He has a reason to go where he's going. And if you oppose leaders in unlawful ways, I mean, not politically correct ways, but in unlawful ways, dishonoring them, you're challenging God. You are saying that you believe you know better than God does who should be in power. And you're saying that without any clue on where God is going with these decisions and how they're all playing out to some better purpose. You have no way to see that. So even when those we oppose strike out at us, the proper response is not to strike back. Don't lower yourself to their tactics. And like David, you have to maintain a respect for the people God has appointed, not for their own sake, not because there's something inherently respectful about them, but because you know God has made that choice, you respect God and his decisions. His ways are higher than our ways. If David, think about this, if David can defend Saul's honor, even after a decade of Saul doing everything he possibly can to kill this man, then I think we can show our opponents a little decency, no? And I just say that from whatever side of the aisle you're on, I couldn't care less, but our witness lies in the balance here to say nothing of our obedience to God. So David honored Saul's rule not because he necessarily liked the man, but because David's heart was fully submitted to God on that issue. And as much as any sinful person probably could, David's heart remained subject to God's will in everything that he did, save a few bad moments. And in 1 Samuel 13, 14, I've alluded to this already tonight, David is called back in 1 Samuel 13, a man after God's own heart, a phrase we've probably all heard. It's a very familiar phrase. People know this phrase from hearing about David as a God after man's own heart. What does that mean? Here's what it means. His heart wanted what God wanted. Now, the trick in that is knowing what God wanted, but that was David's gift, if you will. David had this supernatural knowledge of what God wanted at a level that few others did. But that's only half the problem, right? Knowing is half the problem. The other half is doing something with it. And David had a tendency to follow God in what he knew God wanted. Even as he stumbled at times, he would follow God in how God wants us to respond to our stumbling, in repentance, primarily. His heart followed God to a degree that I think few others have ever equaled And that obedience to God, in fact, I think the only one I could ever think of that did something similar to him would be Joseph. And that obedience to God is even more remarkable when you think about the fact that he obtained such power and wealth as king. You know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Wealth is certainly not a help when it comes to being obedient and godly. And that's David's ability, David's ability to stay true to God for the most part despite his power level, one big exception notwithstanding, is remarkable. Saul, his predecessor, not that man. Not that guy at all. First Samuel records that Saul's life was emblematic of the, really, the, the entire people of Israel over their history. But his life symbolically ends in a very interesting way. He ends leaning on his spear, which in a sense is the way how he lived his whole life as king. That is to say, he leaned on his own abilities. Here I'm using the word differently than suicide. I'm saying he was always leaning on his strength, leaning on his looks, leaning on the military, leaning on his power. His, he did all of that rather than leaning on the Lord. And that's the story of Saul. He uh, ends up killing himself by leaning on this spear just as he killed his dynasty by leaning on himself, spiritually speaking and otherwise. He was all style, no substance, or as you say here, all hat, no cattle, selected by people in the first place because he looked the part. That's what we're told in 1 Samuel. He was selected because people looked at him and said, that guy looks like a king. And that appearance, as we find out, is a facade because Saul is the Bible's poster child, really, for the folly of God's people selecting spiritual leaders based on earthly qualities, like appearance. You know, David is God's rebuttal to that tendency. He's the youngest son of an average family 
a shepherd boy with no training for war or politics, and yet he defeats Goliath with a slingshot, rises to command Israel's army, and beats everybody who comes against him, and ultimately he's anointed the greatest king of Israel. So from an outward perspective, David, not very impressive. Inwardly, he's a man after God's own heart. So if you can choose between a man who has the looks or one who has the character, go with the character every time. Even though every now and then you'll find someone who has the looks and the character. But generally speaking, that was a joke. You guys are really, it's been too long. We gotta get back into the swing of these. That's, for those of you who are uninitiated, that is what I call a joke. Not a great one, but it was there. All right. But seriously, pretty rapper does not mean spiritual goodies are inside necessarily. External beauty is temporary and it's prone to failing, especially if it's accompanied by a corrupt heart. But someone who has a heart for God will increasingly be beautiful over time. And that's the story of David. So David's devotion to God's sovereign will is on full display in how he rejects this man's raising of his hand against the anointed, even a man who is, in most respects, David's enemy at the time. And the chapter ends with this excuse me, with this very interesting song that David composes is a lament or a chant for uh, Saul. We're gonna finish the chapter with this briefly. 2 Samuel 1.17 says, Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So in verse 17, David chants a song. It's a Chant, it's called here. In Hebrew, the word for chant is lament or dirge. We're talking here about something you'd sing at a funeral. So this is like his eulogy to Saul. And he says in verse 18, I want the men here that were with him, you teach this to all generations of Israel. Everyone's to sing this, and it becomes known as the song of the bow sung for Saul's honor. And the author notes that this song was also recorded in a book called the book of Jasher. Now, that's an ancient text that has been lost to history. We don't have it anymore. You know, this book's interesting because it was first mentioned in Joshua. So we're talking now about Joshua in Joshua's day reading things about events of his day and then you have in hundreds of years later Samuel in his days or in the time of David now it's still being around and it still has contemporary history being recorded in it. What that tells you is it's not scripture. It's like a living book of history. It was a running chronicle of history for the nation of Israel and every new generation would keep adding on to it until eventually it's lost to antiquity probably because scripture replaces it as a more accurate record of history, at least as far as Israel's history. Now, looking at the content, one, one thing you should just note right up front as you read this or as you hear it, look how it reflects David's respect for Saul, and not in a disingenuous way. You know, there's people who give you eulogies at your funeral where they say, this is a perfect man. Everyone in the room's like, I don't know who died, but it's not the guy I came for because that's not the person I know. There's that tendency we glorify him in death, right? Might as well be nice to people. But there's no hint of that here. David is speaking about Saul's accomplishments, his valor, his value. David says the the nation, in verse 19, has lost a part of its beauty, and its king is disfigured. What he's meaning is king is disfigured on a high place in, in the north. And in verse 20, he says, may the news never be repeated in Gath or Ashkelon, which were towns of the Philistines, because we don't want them glorying in the defeat of our, our king and of our people. He couldn't bear the thought of it. And even the place of Saul's death is called upon to suffer. Gilboa, you know, no rain on Gilboa. Don't let any of the fields of Gilboa produce things that can be used as offerings in the temple. That would be an honor to Gilboa. Don't let that happen. Why? Well, because Saul dies there, because his shield was defiled by Gentiles there. 
And you notice he even comments there, this is an interesting little comment at the end, he says that his uh, shield was not anointed. That's a reference to God's sovereignty. He's saying he died because God did not defend him. God let him die there. But yet he's still saying we should remember that. And then about that point, the lament shifts to bring in Jonathan. And you have to believe he was primarily saddened about Jonathan's death because Jonathan is the closest thing David ever had to a friend. David has other men who have stood by him in his conflict, who have fought with him against Saul or defended him against Saul. He's had a priest, the high priest of Israel, who's aligned himself with David over Saul. He's had those people. But Jonathan is the one man that David knew as a close confidant and a true friend. Every other man respected David because of his position as king. But Jonathan befriended David despite David being his rival as king. Jonathan valued David's friendship more than he coveted the throne. And he loved David as one would love another believer, a brother in the Lord, as we would say. He loved, his love for David was agape love, we would call it today. The New Testament term, self-sacrificial love. And it impressed itself on David's heart. And now, and this is what you have to understand about the importance of this moment, why chapter one is so important to the book. David's true friend is gone. And David is very much alone now. And in lament, he begins to talk about how important Jonathan was to him. He first connects the two in death in verse 22. He says, you know, these two men and their blood and their courage, they're connected in death even as they were in life. Jonathan's bow engaged the enemy. Saul's sword did not return empty, meaning, you know, he killed Philistines before he died. And then in verse 23, David says, you know, Jonathan and Saul, beloved and pleasant, connected in life and in death, and Again, he's not just saying nice things about the dead here. He is sincerely remembering Saul as a good man, uh, which is, it's just amazing to think David had that sentiment because he connects him with Jonathan. You know, if there was ever a place where you might have put some daylight between these two men, that is where David could have said, you know, Saul, good guy, but man, Jonathan was the real deal. It would have been here. But he makes every effort not to do that. I think probably because he knows people would have expected that. He kind of goes opposite in an extreme to say, both men, both men, both men. I see them both the same way, at least through the very, to the very end. You have to ask yourself, how forgiving and loving could someone possibly be? And I mean, ask yourself this. If you were called upon to do the eulogy for your worst enemy, someone who'd been trying to kill you for a decade, could you muster this? He says, verses 24 through 27, he ends by saying, the people of Israel will join him for lamenting Saul's passing. Why? Because Saul made them rich. Remember that transition I said? From judges, ultimately, to where we end up with Solomon. But along the way is Saul. And the women were lavished with clothing and gold and so on because Israel had become powerful and wealthy. And that wasn't lost on the people. You know, that alone was reason to tame your tongue when it came to criticizing Saul. You know, your pocketbooks are better. The lament ends here with Jonathan as as really the key character, and this is important to the book. He talks about his feelings for Jonathan. He says he's distressed for his brother, Jonathan, who was very pleasant to him. The word pleasant in Hebrew, it's often translated lovely. That's one common way. It can mean beloved, full of love. Jonathan was beloved by David. That's what he's saying. And for David, he says, this friendship was better than the love of women. Now, what he means is, that he found a deeper connection with Jonathan than he had ever been able to obtain with the relationships that he had with women. And let's, let's be honest, David had women problems. Uh, that's, that was his chief problem. And some of you can probably identify with that. And that problem was really the, the albatross around his neck his whole life. But if you want a little psychology here, a little bit of insight into the man, perhaps why this was his issue, you see a sense of it here in his comment. That is, David had a stronger bond with a man like Jonathan, something he could relate to that he never seemed to be able to forge with women. Now, predictably, some today have made the perverse suggestion that David is expressing a kind of romantic homosexual love here for Jonathan. But that's a crude and intentionally slanderous suggestion. It has no basis in the context here, much less in the biblical record overall. Any man who has established a close personal friendship with another man, knows exactly what David is describing here. Romantic love is special, it's desirable. Nothing in life can equal the relationship that a man has with his wife, we all know that. But at the same time, it's also true, no woman can offer a man the kind of relationship that two men 
can have in a friendship that is bonded under certain circumstances. A special bond can happen between men, and I would argue between women, two women as well, that transcends other kinds of relationships. Uh, You know, it's especially true for men who have gone to war together, and these two guys had. Jonathan and David fought together. And that relationship is not sexual in the least, and yet it is deep, and it is abiding, and it's hard to replace friendship. It's the kind of bond that will lead one man to give his life for another man. And in Jonathan's case, it led him to forfeit the kingdom of Israel for David, which, by the way, put Jonathan's life at risk. Because typically, when a new dynasty came into power, the first thing he did was kill all the family members of the other dynasty who threatened your stay in the power. So this man had made a huge sacrifice for David, and David mourned the loss of that special friendship. And his tribute here to Saul and to Jonathan demonstrates one of the attributes of God's own heart in David, and that is limitless forgiveness for his enemies. You know, you hear about God having limitless forgiveness for us in the blood of Christ, and you also hear him calling upon us to do the same, right? 70 times seven, and we add it up, and we're like, okay, I, can th- I think I can do that number. But the point is, it's, it's infinite. And if you think about the difficulty of that, you, you think about David for a minute, David seems to know how to do that. Forgiving someone who has hurt you repeatedly and deeply is really a God thing. Because I don't think it's anything we can do easily. Of all the Old Testament characters who show that kind of forgiveness, I think David does it the most. Again, Joseph is probably a close second to that. And David's ability to forgive served him so well his whole life. You're gonna see story after story in 2 Samuel of people who come into David's life, harm him, offend him, do something wrong, and at the end of it all, he just forgives them and lets them go. That's the first thing you notice in this song. But the second thing here is the thing I keep talking about with Jonathan, the thing that will ultimately drive David the whole of his life after this. David starts his reign a lonely man. He's truly lonely. You know the old phrase, it's lonely at the top? It's true. It's very true. Because you get too high in any organization or any community, any setting, and no one knows how to relate to you anymore. And you don't know how to relate to them. And it becomes this awkwardness that you never fully escape. And it's why you often, in ministry, I'm not saying I'm, <laughs> look, I'm not high by anybody's standards, right? If I'm, if I'm your form of power, you need to you know, aim higher. But in any setting, no matter how small it is, when you become the guy at the top of some chain, no one sees you the same way. And you can't really be seen in the right way. And you find yourself suddenly alone a lot. And what's ironic is people say, you know, I don't want to bother the pastor. He's a busy guy. You know, a lot of days I'm like, well, what am I going to do? No one wants to talk to me today. No, it's not quite. I always got something to do. But there is, and I'm, not, I'm using myself as an example only because it's convenient, but, you know, a better example would be someone of significant power, someone who has real authority and just isn't even touchable by most people. And that's certainly a king in Israel's day. And that person just becomes very isolated and loneliness, as we studied Second Samuel, was the driving force in David's life. The loss of Jonathan becomes a subtext to the whole story. You're gonna watch a man who struggles to replace what he lost here. And he he struggles to find people he can trust. He struggles to find love, looking for it in all the wrong places. And he struggles even at times trusting God. And that feeling of loneliness, I think, was not only his his greatest handicap, but it also became the secret to his genius. Because I believe it allowed David, the leader, the warrior David, to become that much more dependent on God because who else was he going to be dependent upon? And it also inspired David the poet, David the songwriter, musician, to write some of the most inspiring scripture that we have in the Old Testament. I mean, perhaps the best-known passage of the whole Bible is Psalm 23. And when you read Psalm 23, David wrote it, when you see Psalm 23, that is a psalm that is about responding to loneliness and fear but doing so in a godly way. And that's David's life. And it's appropriate then that the story of David's rise to king begins with a poem set to music which praises David's enemy as he forgives him. It shows the man's talent, shows his heart, and shows his focus. That's what we're gonna end with tonight. So next week, we really get into the story of David's life moving forward from here, chapters two and onward, and what we're studying at that point is David's consolidation of power, his rise to king, everything's great, he's on top of the world, and then the interesting stuff begins to happen for a man who's always looking for something else. 
Let's pray. We'll stop there. If you have questions about the lesson, you're free to ask those when we come out of the prayer. If you have other questions about the Bible or anything else you'd like to bring up, we can do that as well. We go to about 8.30 or until the last question is asked, and you're always free to leave after the prayer if you don't want to hang around for that part of it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, Father, thank you for letting me have a chance to preach again to people who are present in my, in my room with me, Father. That is such a blessing, and uh, I thank you for that. Thank you, Father, for the word and the story of a man like David who can inspire us, both in the way he lived out his life in such excellent ways, but also, Father, in the way that a man can stumble and be repentant and be restored. If our life is mostly of the first, then we are thankful, Father, that we have a model by which to follow, but if our life is mostly like the second, we likewise are thankful, Father, we have a model that we can follow. But in all cases, Father, we rest in your grace the forgiveness you've given us and the power to live out our faith that you give us every day. And we thank you, Father, that we can learn through that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.